Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. It is a uh, lovely, slightly gloomy uh, Monday morning here, Monday morning-ish, in Atlanta, Georgia, and it looks like uh, I am wearing a hat, and my co-host Noel is wearing a hat as well. It's true, Ben. I am wearing a hat. Uh, alas, it, it is not uh, bedazzled or adorned with any like fruit or or vegetable uh, items uh, or any kind of perhaps uh, brightly colored feathers or even entire uh, taxidermied chickens because that's a thing. Yes, neither of our hats contain weapons. If you could see the Zoom call today, that would probably be your first question. You would be like, Ben, why don't you have a... Uh, a knife of some sort in your hat, or maybe a tiny gun disguised as fruit. Or you might even ask, why <laughs> is super producer Casey Pegram not wearing a hat? And uh, I, I think it's because, you know, you and I figured this out a number of years ago. Uh, Casey, you're not really a hat guy. That is true, although I get compliments when I do don a hat. Well, you have that one amazing hat, Casey, that just says movies, if I'm not mistaken. It is a hat that says movies. That is correct. Casey on the case. You need one good hat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. That'll that'll last me. Yeah. Yeah, it's all it takes sometimes. You know, and I and I want to clarify really quickly. I know we we seem to have oddly pivoted from me having all these extra accoutrements in my imaginary hat to Ben talking about weapons. There's a there's a crossover here between these. See, the weapons in question for today's story were actually very functional and would have been used to hold in place some of the accoutrement, the aforementioned accoutrement, uh, which you know got more and more absurd uh, as you know fashion tends to do uh, of the time. We're talking about the turn of the 20th century, women's style. It was all the rage to have 
big, massive hair uh, and, and big, huge hats that were kind of part of the hairdo. They were sort of like almost woven in. They were like almost one in the same, this kind of like mega headdress thing of, you know, organic hair and weird little props. Um, and in order to keep all of stuff from just totally falling into the, uh, the assumedly disgusting, filthy sidewalks of the time, uh, women needed to enlist the help of these giant needles. Uh, you hear hat pin, and my mind immediately goes to, like, hair pin. Not the same at all, my friends. A hat pin was a 12-inch long, uh, very, very, very pointy needle. Yeah, that's right. Now, for listeners in the southern part of the United States, these really big, ostentatious hats may be associated with church services, particularly the big-ticket services like Easter, right? Uh, but back in the day, these uh, big, big hats were a big, big deal, and they were much more common uh, there was also a social change occurring at the turn of the 20th century. For the first time, at least in modern history, women were socializing on their own. Uh, they were strolling sidewalks without, uh, without backup, without a chaperone, and there they encountered what uh, the author of Men a Mental Floss article calls a new peril, street harassment. And so... In a very innovative way, fashion started becoming a matter of defense as well as a sartorial matter. And so in newspapers throughout the land, you began seeing these uh, stories that had a common thread, or I would say a common underpinning, a common hat pinning. Well, you get where we're going. There were uh, multiple stories of women defending themselves from rapscallions, Dan Sickle-esque scoundrels with hat pins. That's a new one on me, Ben. Dan Sickle asks. Oh, right. I'm sorry. I thought that was just one word. You were, you were referring to a previous uh, Lothario of, of, of ridiculous history lore. Uh, check that one out if you missed it. Um, yeah, it's true. There, there's, a, there's a word we're going to get into a little more of the, the etymology behind, or maybe not the etymology, but when it came into fashion, uh, referring to these men, these aggressively flirtatious entitled men, the types that we would have talked about in our wolf whistling episode uh, as mashers. Mm -hmm. I love this term. I mean, it's obviously, you know, referring to something very awful and uh, and misogynist, but just the word masher is, is funny to me. Um, but yeah, it's true. It was the turn of the 20th century. Women were aligning with one another to petition for the right to vote. A lot of these women, we talked about that issue very recently too, uh, were in heavily populated, dense urban areas. Uh, and there were a lot of, there was a lot of wealth. There was a lot of also poverty, but there was a lot of ridiculous wealth. And, and these hats and their, you know, height were almost a flex of one's wealth. Um, so women, you know, who had been relegated to the home before that were out now taking public transportation or taking walks alone at night, like you said. And the men, uh, who at the time were not used to seeing women out and were also, you know, living in a very patriarchal society where they felt entitled to hoot and holler and wolf whistle and even, you know, paw on, on women. If they, if they wanted to, uh, they started to act accordingly um, in, in their kind of doggedly way. Uh, and they started to, you know, kind of aggressively flirt with these um, uh, unescorted women. So this became 
a problem, a real mm-hmm. problem, uh, because there's a fine line between just aggressive wolf whistling and hollering and maybe a little, you know, pawing to full on sexual assault. Yeah, I would say it's all harassment. Um, to me, flirting always felt like there was some reciprocation there. Uh, you're right, though. Uh, there's an author named Carrie Seagrave who wrote a book called The Hatpin Menace, American Women Armed and Fashionable, 1887 through 1920. And this author says that because of the factors that my co-host just described, for perhaps the only time in American history, virtually all American women went out and about armed with a deadly, though legal, weapon, that hat pin. Uh, well, one note about catcalling, right, which is uh, just the very low end of what these masters were doing. Catcalling never seemed like it worked to me. I never get it. We mentioned this in the Wolf Whistle episode, but uh, catcalling in general doesn't seem to, it it seems more uh, uh, an expression of power and harassment than it does a genuine attempt to begin a romantic liaison. The mashers took it further than that. They didn't just catcall, they were opportunists. So if they saw a woman unaccompanied, in a uh, sparsely populated part of town, like a dark alley or what have you, they would feel entitled to grab a woman's arm and then try to ask uh, this person to go with them to a secondary location, etc. The Scranton Truth in 1914 put it this way, saying, the masher took a lady's arm, the masher took liberties, the masher might, with the slightest provocation, take advantage. He approached a woman he did not know to ask her to a dance or to ask if he hadn't met her somewhere before. And then it went on to call the masher a cad and a coward and saying, you know, these guys realize the only way an unaccompanied woman can express her resentment is by ignoring them. Turns out, luckily, that wasn't the case. You could take it a step further if you had the right kind of hat and the right kind of pen. And you know, to be fair, I mean the the press was on the side of these of the women and 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 their right to kind of go. I mean, there were certainly politicians and you know uh, outspoken male uh, members of the community that were not in favor of this. Uh, but the newspapers started to report these encounters with mashers, uh, which was kind of a slang for this like lecherous and predatory male Lothario, you know, with the entitlement and all that. So it definitely wasn't like okay, you know, um, at all at least in the press's eyes. Uh, and in Theodore Dreiser's Sister Carrie, which was a novel at the time, uh, the master is described as one whose dress or manners are calculated to uh, elicit the admiration of susceptible young women. So it's almost like uh, what you might refer to today as a f- boy. Or a rake mm-hmm. uh, or a, uh, a peacock <laughs> in the world of the NLP type. Uh, pickup artist guys, peacocking is exactly what they're describing here. Uh, we we I like where we're going with this because we know that the press was on on the side of these victims, uh, but they were they were patronizing and they were condescending about it. They also give us documentation of women fighting back before the rise of the hat pin. There was a lady in Chicago who was so bothered by uh, a masher's, quote, insulting questions that she beat the shit out of him in the face with an umbrella until he staggered away, hopefully learning from his uh, his terrible uh, behavior. <laughs> 
One would hope, and then also just a little detail here about that encounter, that it was a, a showgirl um, who likely was either on her way to or from work and, and possibly, you know, wearing some of her showgirl attire. And that even more in the mind of a masher would have been like, oh, this this girl's just asking for it, you know, all that uh, ridiculous logic. And the press really did kind of glom onto this as almost like a, uh, oh, like a vigilante kind of thing where um, the stories kept being reported more and more and the tone of the reporting was very much in favor of the women and and uh, kind of like raised them up as kind of heroes within the community, you know, fighting back in, in against these uh, these villainous uh, men, um, which was kind of unusual at the time. A lot of times, the uh, the press sort of took the side of like the 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 popular mores, and you know, this being a relatively new thing of women kind of venturing out. I, I think it's pretty interesting that the press uh, so quickly kind of realized that this was uh, an important thing to cover and actually took the side. Uh, and the cause of the women being harassed. Victim blaming in the media? You don't say. Well, exactly. But that's why that's the thing, that's why I'm surprised. Especially at the time, I would have thought maybe the media would have been more victim blaming, but instead it starts to uh, really mark a transition uh in the way that this kind of stuff is viewed. Slowly from this kind of housewife mentality uh of, you know, this whole uh whatever American dream thing with like women staying at home with the kids and the dog and all that and having dinner prepared for the man when he comes home from his work with his briefcase and the slippers and newspaper bungling all this up, but you get the image. Uh, and it really started advocating for female independence. Um, and I think that's really important thing to, to note here. Um, working women and uh, women who were advocating for suffrage started to really kind of be able to steer the conversation and were able to really let the world know about the plight of of women out in the world, you know, against mm -hmm. these these entitled masher dudes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is this is an interesting point. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier. There is a again, nothing occurs in a vacuum. There is a paradigm shift here, a cultural shift, mores and values are changing. Dating is changing. So back in the day, in polite society, uh, a man would, a gentleman, of course, would uh, call upon a, a family home and into a woman's parlor. A gentleman caller? And they would have a polite conversation on events of the day under the close eye of parents or an aunt or another uh, authority figure. But now it was different. Now the gentleman would still call, but say, may I escort you to a show hall or a dance hall? And people were clutching their pearls and wringing their monocles about this because then you couldn't control the kind of social company people kept. This could be a recipe for iniquity and evil. The suffragists fully rejected this notion. Uh, and they also said, look, you shouldn't be blaming women for being harassed. You shouldn't say that women have to dress as modestly as possible and that it's their fault if they get harassed. The problem isn't us, they said. The problem is the quote, the vileness of the masher mind. Ooh, the masher mind. The funny thing is, Ben, the things you're describing here, these things still happen today. The idea of you were asking for it. Right. You were dressing in such a way. The victim blaminess. And I mean, it, we have, we've come a long way, but not so far. Uh, not really. And I think this, yeah, yeah. 
but again, you know, women are in between a rock and a hard place. Uh, society isn't really on their side in many cases, and uh, the suffragists are doing their best to counteract that usual condescending shame on you type narrative. But there's a legal problem here too, because let's say you want to protect yourself and you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm a, I'm a young woman of means in the United States, the land of the second amendment. Why can't I just start packing heat at the time, especially in Chicago, it was against the law to have a concealed firearm. Not just for women, right? Like for anyone. Right. And, and it was illegal to carry most knives. What's a gal to do when she's being mashed left and right? Well, here come, uh, you know, it, it's just a matter of uh, being thrifty and using what you have around you at your disposal. The hat pin wasn't employed uh, as a weapon. It was initially a very functional item that was used to kind of pin all of this stacked crazy stuff together that the women of the time were wearing on their heads. Not all, but, but many. Um, and it was just a matter of uh, one quick thinking woman pulling that thing out and using it to, to skewer a masher. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. This episode is brought to you by eBay motors. eBay motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I just remember, it was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So before we get into the kind of real origin story, the real, you know, young Bruce Wayne seeing his mom and dad gunned down by the Joker uh, or whatever, or Jack, what, I forget how that story actually goes. Um, we need to talk a little bit about the history of this evolving kind of by today's standards, bizarre fashion choice of wearing these massive hats that required these deadly uh, needle-like hat pins to, to kind of stitch together, right? And that all began uh, in the late 1850s um, when women, especially in summer, would wear these straw hats. They needed to keep them on their head so they wouldn't get blown away by the wind. Um, and the hat pin was employed to do that because it had to literally skewer it kind of through from the back. Uh, and the, the hat, you know, obviously is a porous material. You can stick the pin through there without like damaging the hat. Uh, and then that would keep women's hats from blowing off. And initially, these pins didn't need to be super long because they were just used to hold a single hat onto a single head. So you might secure it, you know, on in a couple places with a smaller pin. Um, and uh, then you were all set. But as the hats changed and the styles changed, the pins had to, you know, uh, evolve along with the time, right? Yeah, I would say I would say there are two things here. Uh, so if we don't look at the social perils of the time, uh, we see a a pretty common trend, which is something starts off functional and then becomes fashion. It becomes a, a an aesthetic statement. That's kind of what happened with the hat pin. Uh, it went from just being something to hold something in place to something that was seen and displayed and became part of the whole vibe, the hat vibe. Uh, but we notice around the 1890s, just a few years before the 1890s, we start seeing the hat pin transform, not just on an aesthetic level, but on a functional level. Folks, when we say hat pins, just so, uh, just so you have the picture in your mind, we're not talking about a thumbtack we're not talking about a push pin. We're talking about some uh, something that's more like a, around a, a, a ten inch to one foot long needle. Like it's 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 dangerous. It's a pokerizer for anybody who is a fan of the stand and catches that deep cut reference. Or or if you think of Arya Stark's sword in Game of Thrones that was actually called Needle, uh, it would be something that you could wield like that. You could absolutely stick someone with the pointy end of this and it uh, do some serious damage. Oh, yeah. I'm saying pokerizer uh, because I like the word pokerizer, but the pokerizer is actually a gun and uh, a word a character makes up uh, to describe them killing gas station employees. But, yes, Got it. you would Got pokerize it. people. 
you could be pokerized by one of these, no doubt. And by the early 1900s, what once was a very functional, lightweight kind of straw hat to keep the sun out of a woman's eyes had really mutated into these towering, bizarro, you know, taffeta, ribbon, you know, silk things. Sometimes they were had, they had like feathers, uh, even fruit. It makes me think of that, uh, that very famous Latin singer uh, and movie star, Carmen Miranda, who I believe the Chiquita Banana Woman was based on, but I might just be making that up. But it really was in fashion. And so these shorter hat pins weren't going to do the trick anymore. Not to mention that the longer hat pins uh, and the hair, again, this is all kind of like stitched together with the hair and the hats and the ribbons, all kind of one thing. You had to have longer hat pins. They would be between 10 and 12 inches, like we were saying. Not to mention the stem alone, like the part that you hold to stick the, the pin in, sometimes were several inches long on their own. And they were adorned with jewels or, or whatever. Like they were like, absolutely, the part would be sticking out, would be an extra little accessory. Depending on your economic state, if you're more in the working class, then you're probably going to have a something a little more functional, a little less ornate. But uh, like you would have maybe a, a pin with a white or black bead atop it, but they become much more uh, sophisticated, showy, and expensive from there, this is a global trend. We're mainly talking about the U.S., but the, these hat pins are popular in Europe, Australia, New Zealand as well. Most everybody is wearing hats and hat pins, so it's not unusual to be loved by anyone. I'm kidding. It's not unusual to have a hat pin uh, if you're walking around. And originally, People were just getting maybe accidentally injured every now and then. You're on a crowded train, etc., cetera, uh, and you get poked with a hat pin in the, in the mash of the crowd. And there's an interesting thing about mashers that we'll, we'll mention toward the end here that doesn't take place in the U.S. Uh, so people quickly realized this was a way to immediately punish uh, these undesirable mashers. You just pulled the pin. You literally pulled the pin on them, and the wounds that people would get from these pins were described by the Times as not serious, but very painful. And then we enter into these human interest stories. Now, we pulled a couple of examples of actual hat pin retaliations uh, but we want you to know there are many, many more. These kinds of human interest stories were very common in newspapers of the day. Let's say we start with uh, Sadie Williams versus the cable car robber in 1898 as this trend begins. Yeah, to me, this is that kind of origin story. And I think a perfect place to start because this is really right on the cusp of when the hats started getting insane and the hairpins started getting longer. This was in 1898. Um, and it was a rainy morning in Chicago. Sadie Williams was getting on the Blue Island Avenue cable car heading to a funeral, uh, understandably decked out in her uh, most uh, elaborate funereal head regalia. Uh, and the car, it was early in the morning, Morning was empty except for her, another woman, and the conductor. So she decided to sit near the back and get comfortable for a trip uh, up to 26th Street and California Avenue. Um, a couple stops down, a few, two men boarded the car. And these were coal-powered cars, cable cars, by the way. So the conductor bent down to shovel a little more coal into the burner. 
one of the new uh, arrivals to the car went over and actually restrained the conductor and started to rob him. Uh, mm-hmm. and dig dig through his pockets uh, and the conductor was struggling to get free but to, to no avail yeah this story is a little bit different uh because they're not mashing on the victim cd williams is actually more like a uh, street level superhero in a netflix series so here's what sadie does uh she says hey see here you can't fight here and then one of the men slaps her uh down and pushes her into a seat nearby but she doesn't take that line down she quickly pops back up again she raises her hand to her hat picture the moment casey we need some superhero music She pulls out this pin. It's long. It's one of those foot-long ones. And then she holds it like a dagger, and she plunges the pin straight into the guy's chest. She stabs the snot out of him, uh, and she doesn't stop him from escaping. The robber freaks out, decides that he'll live to fight and rob conductors another day, and he runs away. Uh, So Sadie isn't technically uh, successful, right? But she does fight these ne'er-do-wells off, and she does help start a revolution. Later, someone asked the conductor over at the Blue Island Avenue cable car about the events, about Sadie Williams coming to his aid, and he says, if it hadn't been for the bravery of that woman, they would have robbed me. She put up a better fight than a good many men would. The way she jabbed her hat pin into that man was a great sight. There's no doubt about her pluck. I miss that we used to describe people as plucky and say they have pluck. That's I still one. say it. I like plucky. I'm a huge fan of plucky. Uh, and then this really started to spread. Only a couple of years later, Teddy Roosevelt himself, the president, was rescued by uh, what was referred to as a hat pin brigade when he was visiting Manhattan, Kansas in the fall of 1900. Uh, he was not the president at this point. He was then the governor of New York. He was visited by a large crowd uh, who were there to hear him speak. Um, and then men began kind of climbing over the rails to get a better look. Uh, and blocking the women's view. Um, And the women were yelling. They wanted to hear, you know, they wanted to see as well. Uh, And the men, of course, in typical uh, gross manly fashion, refused to do what they were being asked, refused to get down, continued to block the view. And then a rallying cry came from one woman who had absolutely had it, saying, try your hat pins, at which point several women, you know, pulled out their their hair swords, as I'm going to refer to them from here forth, uh, and started to uh, come at the men. Uh, who then, you know, pretty quickly fled. Uh, the women had won the day, and Roosevelt appreciated it because he uh, was kind of getting stressed out by this kind of behavior, too. He said uh, he appreciated heartily this exhibition of strenuous life. For no man, however courageous he may be, likes to face a resolute woman with a hat pin in her hand. That's the kind of publicity you just can't buy. If I were a hat pin tycoon or manufacturer at this time, I would be over the moon. I would be over the brim, I should say. There it is. Uh, Another example, Leody Blaker and the stagecoach Masher, 1903, just a few years later. It's May 28th, the afternoon. Leody is a young Kansas resident touring the Big Apple. She hops on a Fifth Avenue stagecoach at 23rd Street, settles in for the ride, no doubt uh, amazed by the sights and sounds and, like most people visiting New York for the first time, uh, weirded out by the smells. Isn't it weird? Every block in New York City has a radically different smell. It always gets to me. Anyway, it's it's the Big Apple still. The coach is very crowded. 
And when it jostles, she notices that this guy, this stranger who's sitting next to her, every time there's a jostle, this dude like tries to be slick. He scoots an inch closer to Blaker. So she's looking at this guy. She's profiling him. She's giving him what uh, always Sonny would call an ocular assessment. She says, elderly, elegantly dressed, benevolent looking. Horse picks up speed, tosses the passengers around again, and now the man is so close that he's touching her, hip to hip, shoulder to shoulder. And then, folks, he does that date move. You guys can see it on Zoom. You know what I'm talking about. The old yawn and stretch. Let me just drape my arm over this young lady. Classic move. Uh, uh, but then when he lifted his arm and he draped, he began to kind of like, you know, go in for the second base kind of situation, um, going low across her back, uh, she was done. And she reached for her hat pin, which was nearly a foot long, and just, this is like something out of like the the Sopranos or something, and just jammed it into the meaty part of the guy's arm. Uh, At which point he let out a terrible shriek uh, and ran off of the coach at the next available stop. Um, and she even said to New York world, he was such a nice looking old gentleman. I was sorry to hurt him. I've heard about Broadway mashers and L mashers, but I didn't know fifth Avenue had a particular brand of its own. See that that's just a distinction there is like, she's talking about the lower, you know, parts of town, uh, but fifth Avenue to think that there would be, you know, a, a more upscale masher, but yeah, it takes all kinds. If New York women will tolerate mashing, Kansas girls will not. Boom. Go Kansas. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. This episode is brought to you by eBay motors. eBay motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I just remember, it was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it so uh the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. 
And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So this seems pretty inspiring, right? And you can picture millions of people around the country reading these stories and feeling empowered in a way. However, the mass media of the time was somewhat fickle and certainly was not known for consistently giving women their due. Critics arose because the well-actually crowd has well actually existed way before Twitter. So there were critics who came forward uh, and said, hey, this trend is not that great. You know what I mean? It's hashtag not all men. Uh, some of these guys are completely innocent. They're not mashers. They're being attacked, and they didn't do anything wrong. There was a story in an excellent Smithsonian article about a girl in Scranton who was 19 years old uh, who was just playing with her hat pin and thrust it at her boyfriend and apparently pierced his heart Fatally. Ooh. It doesn't sound like playing around. That, no. that, that does sound like stabbing someone in the chest. That is exactly what that sounds like. Sticking with the pointy end indeed. I mean, because this is starting to, you know, go from a single kind of vigilante woman uh, attacking her attacker back, you know, turning the tables to something starting to resemble a bit more of a mob, you know? I mean, it's, and, and not, I'm not making any excuses for anything or anybody here. I just, I'm trying to see both sides a little bit, but in New York, you had a hundred female factory workers, all wielding the weapon of choice of the time, the hat pen attacking police officers who arrested two of their, um, you know, comrades, I guess you could call them, uh, for allegedly being anarchists um, during speeches where they were trying to organize. So it's, it's, it's a tough one, right? Because it's like, yeah, the police, I'm sure, were acting way above and beyond uh, the, their authority and, and, and over 
overstepping and arresting people for just making speeches, but it's also not the best look when you're literally attacking the police with, you know, swords. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, when you start attacking police officers, it it definitely does uh, color the public perception of things a little bit, especially in these days. Um, Quote, we look for the new and imported Colts hat pin, one newspaper said at the time, or the Smith and Wesson quick action pin. So they really were starting to equate them to like rifles or or, or handguns, because as we remember, it was harder to get your hands on guns and and much more um, against the law. Yeah, and knives as well have these regulations. So pins are kind of a loophole and people are pushing that loophole. Things start to get crazy, folks. We're talking about uh, people having hat pin duels in the street. I picture it kind of like a Wild West vibe, but, you know, with very big hats and people hold their hands up. And then they count and they draw their pins and they go at it. But there was a 20-minute hat pin duel in Lake Forest. Both of the people involved in the duel were using hat pins as weapons. There were also other countless uh, anecdotes about this. And eventually, the law catches up. By 1910, people are panicking about hat pins in the U.S. and abroad. So lawmakers in Kansas City, lawmakers in Hamburg, Paris, and of course Chicago start writing laws that say, (laughs) this is my favorite part of this, writing laws that limit the length of the hat pins, that makes sense, but also demanding that these things get scabbards. They're basically saying, look, these are head machetes. You are walking around with a head machete and you need to sheath that quick and in a hurry. Wait a minute now. Let's be fair, though. The hair and the hat is kind of the scabbard. Just putting that out there. You're literally drawing it from your head. So I mean, how, how are they actually going to function as they're meant to if you have them inside of a sheath? I think that's where I think that's where Johnny Law eventually said, look, these are swords. You have head swords. You have mm-hmm. head machetes. Uh, if you have a hat pin more than nine inches long, for example, in Chicago, then you are going to be fined $50 which is, you know, nothing to sneeze at at that time. Definitely not. And it's interesting how early some of this, uh, some of these uh, more controversial, less uh, freedom fighter kind of instances of hat pen um, wielding took place. In 1898, a Parisian tourist, Bartholomew Brandt Brandner, was murdered with a hat pen when he was visiting Chicago. It was a quote uh, to the quote, the the, the coverage of it at the time, uh, a small puncture which began near the corner of the left eye and expanded far into the interior of the skull. Uh, And there were no details really beyond that uh, about, you know, what led to this. But it was something that that started this public opinion kind of spiraling out of control, where the coverage initially was good on you, ladies, for taking care of yourself and and, and fighting back against the masher menace. Then it flipped to becoming the hat pen menace. Uh, Or Ben, as you said off mic, uh, the hat pen peril, which feels like a kind of a weird flip on Zoot Suit Riot. Yes. Yep. Yep. Working on the sequel lyrics now. So eventually hat pins go on trial. There's a lady named Nan Davis. She's the daughter of a Chicago steel manufacturer. And she's familiar with this because uh, she takes classes downtown late at night. She hates that they're changing the hat pin law because she feels like it's leaving innocent people with no means to defend themselves. So she writes a missive to the mayor and the city council. And she says, please change the law back. 
Uh, in her letter, she says, a hat pin is a woman's weapon of defense. I always feel safe going home at night with a hat pin available for protection. Before leaving a streetcar, I always carry a hat pin ready in my hand until I am safe within the door of my house. Thousands of other women undoubtedly can speak from their experience of how a stout hat pin has been an effective defense in times of danger. And so this is like, you see this in the modern day now, right? Uh, there will be a city council meeting. There, city council meetings are often not very well attended, but every once in a while, they start to address a, a huge cultural issue and then the room gets packed. That's what happens here in the proceedings for how long hat pins should be in Chicago and whether they need a sheath. Uh, it, there are tons of looky-loos, men and women, all kinds of different views about it. They're crowding into the room. And uh, one supporter says, I love this one. One supporter says, if women care to wear carrots and roosters on their heads, that's a matter of their own concern. But when it comes to wearing swords, they must be stopped. But unfortunately, you know, despite Nan's uh, very um, passionate speech um, in, in representing women's rights and their rights specifically to defend themselves, the ordinance did pass by a vote of a very strong majority of 68 to 2. Um, and then this kind of led to a landslide of other laws passing like this all across the country, places like Milwaukee, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, New Orleans. Then it made its way internationally because this was, after all, kind of an international phenomenon. Uh, Sydney, Australia uh, had an event where 60 women were imprisoned uh, rather than paying fines for wearing these, quote, murderous weapons in their hats. Um, and then a lot of women in London who were considered to be on the more conservative side, uh, they refused to buy what was referred to then as hat, po hat pin point protectors. So essentially, I mean, there was there was pretty widespread protest uh, after these these laws, these ordinances, and and uh, subsequent laws were passed. And there's some uh, Harriet Stanton Blatch, who was the daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was one of the most prominent figures in the women's suffrage movement, had this to say: uh, "This is but another argument for votes for women, uh, and another painful illustration of the fact that men cannot discipline women." And then. Stan goes on to say some really interesting, uh, interestingly problematic stuff, uh, referring to kind of a higher class of woman policing a lower class of woman, which doesn't age super well. We're going to skip that quote. But if you're interested, there is an interesting division and and some problematic features to uh, the women's suffrage movement. There is you know, still kind of an elitism to it at times. Classism, for sure. And fast forward, spoiler alert, surprise, the laws were pretty ineffectual because the police felt like they were being a little bit, uh, they felt like doofuses approaching women in the streets to enforce these laws. Because remember, the cops knew why people were rocking these hat pins. They, they knew that the, the hat pins had a use, were there for a reason. And so that's why we see things like this 1917 article in the Chicago Daybook saying that, yeah, men can get women arrested for their hat pins, but instead, the daybook concludes, far be it from us to pick on the ladies. Let's try and see that they all get a seat so they won't have to swing around on a strap. And of course, women are furious. Like, okay, you're telling me that not only are you not going to arrest these guys harassing me, you're not going to allow me to defend myself? Boo. Tut, tut, 
Interestingly, though, uh, this did lead to a new sort of phenomenon, uh, nationally at least, in, in the U.S., uh, uh, for women's self-defense classes or like hand-to-hand combat training. Um, in around 1950, there are some really uh, telling articles uh, from places like uh, the, new, the Tacoma Times where the headlines say, New York women pay $25 a piece for boxing lessons. It's a craze. And then you have an incredible, um, uh, essentially uh, a cartoon, I guess, from Cosmopolitan from 1910 uh, showing a woman wearing a what looks like literally a cornucopia kind of bowl of fruit on her head and one of those classic ruffled white blouses tucked into a long skirt uh, who is grappling with a masher type man wearing a suit with a little Hitler mustache holding a pistol and she's got him gripped by the elbow and the forearm and it says safe from attack when you know jujitsu. So uh, the the actual self-defense kind of market began Mm. to take hold here uh, as a direct result of these laws and these ordinances. Mm. And you started to see Japanese culture, specifically in the upper class, again, by the way, all of this is largely in the upper class because uh, the hat pins the, would have been um, an expensive item to have, as would $25 for boxing lessons. Yeah, yeah. A couple points, of course, to be absolutely fair, that wasn't the Hitler mustache yet. That was just the toothbrush mustache <laughs> at this fair, point. Fair, uh, And now it's the Hitler mustache. And I guess Michael Jordan has one too. But uh, you may be asking yourself, right, if, with, with all this social turmoil, with this being so common throughout the world, although yes, definitely in the upper classes, uh, wh- what happened to the hat pin? Wither the hat pin? Well, uh, the answer is in the onset of World War I. Uh, people were being encouraged to use alternative means of defense, right? Like boxing, like Noel just mentioned, uh, using whistles to scare away attackers. Uh, The ultimate undoing rests on two factors. First, fashion, which is ever fickle. And secondly, uh, the rush for resources during World War I, especially in Europe. Metals were cut back. You you needed them for the military. You, it seemed frivolous to use them in jewelry. Hats got smaller. Hemlines came up. Hat pins were also smaller and smaller and smaller and kind of aesthetically being replaced by military buttons to show your support. So that's where we see this shift. We went from really ornate MTV Cribs level hat pins or pimp my ride hat pins to military, more functional hat pins. And then in the 1920s, hats that didn't need hat pins became popular. So by 1925, it's bye-bye hat pin. Of course, mashers still remain. And Noel, I love that you mentioned Japan because uh, one big problem in Japan uh, is the equivalent of mashers on the train system. Technically, they're frauderist, which is a very weird term. And interestingly enough about Japan, too, like no guns, <laughs> not a thing, has never really been a thing. A lot of uh, pokey type weapons and hand to hand combat. And so there is our story today, folks. The rise and fall of the hat pin peril. Uh, you may be fortunate enough to have inherited a hat pin from one of your relatives or ancestors. If so, let us know what it looks like. I'm, I'm curious to see if anybody has something that would just qualify as a straight up head machete. I, yeah, I, I guess I didn't realize. I knew what a hat pin was, but I did not realize how incredibly long they got. Uh, and I'm sure if we go to like, let's see, antique 
hat pins on the internet. We could probably get, oh my goodness, yeah. And they really do look like torture devices. They're mm-hmm. quite long and the uh, the the little handles are very ornate uh, with jewels and, and metal work. Uh, and these all do have little little pointy like stick covers at the very at the very end because yeah, man, you could literally run one of these right through a guy's eye, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. there's actually a character in a Haruki Murakami book that I've been trying to uh, slowly work my way through um, that is a female assassin who uh, kills her victims using a very, very long, skinny needle that is so skinny that she can just pop it right through the back of someone's neck and take it out, and they wouldn't even realize it had happened, and they just die instantly. Oh, is it 1Q84? That's the one, yeah. yeah that's You're reading it, huh? I am, I am. How far? How far are you in? Not very. <laughs> okay. It's it's great, but it's like it's I've just I have been you as a voracious reader. Uh I, I absolutely uh envy you. I have been having a hard time in 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 the days of uh kind of oversaturation of short form content of like making my way through an entire book. I'm working on, I'm trying to change for the better this year, and that's what I'm starting with. Of course I picked a thousand page book to start with. <laughs> uh but you know, wish me luck. Good luck, man. You'll enjoy it. And don't feel bad. It's that book in particular, no spoilers, is like several different stories. I'm still trying to figure that book out. Uh, and you know what? Murakami's a great writer. I, I feel like, just like the Templar said in Indiana Jones, you've chosen wisely. Also, shout out, I can't remember whether we mentioned this on air, but uh, when we were shouting out a lot of comic books, uh, don't forget, Noel, you've got a you've got an excellent uh, two-volume series waiting for you at the office. Yes! Act surprised. I am surprised uh, in advance, and I'm going to maybe pop by there tomorrow and get it. Thank you so much, Ben. Nice. Oh, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you, as always, to our super producer, uh, Casey Pegram. Thanks to Christopher Hasiotis, who uh, a, a little bird tells me may be returning to the show sooner rather than later. And, of course, thanks to Gabe Luzier. Huge thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister, who will return to torment us, hopefully not with pointy objects in the near future. Uh, And thanks to you, Ben, for being a pal and a confidant and for, you know, talking hat pens and mashers with me today. Let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter, not just as a show, but as individuals. You can find me on Instagram exclusively, where I am at HowNowNoelBrown. And you can find me on Twitter, where I'm Ben Bolin, HSW. Uh, you can find me also on Instagram, where I am at Big Hat Pen Energy. I'm kidding. I'm at Ben Bolin. See you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. This episode of ridiculous history is brought to you by Avalon waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am. And, uh, aren't we all? 
We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.